Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Today we've got a bit of a romantic-themed podcast for you, what with it being Valentine's Day and all, so we thought we would try to appeal to everyone's hearts with a bit of a mixed bag. First up, something for the daters. If you're going on a first date this evening, you might want to mute this section, as Lucy Robinson, author of A Passionate Love Affair with a Total Stranger, shares a hilarious anecdote about a terrible first date. Next, for the old romantics, we have an impressive but simple recipe from Jules Clancy's Five Ingredients, Ten Minutes. After that, we have something for our saucier listeners with an audiobook extract from Sylvia Day's raunchy title, Seven Years to Sin. For those more interested in the physiological aspect of love, we have an extract from Anatomies by Hugh Aldersley-Williams, all about the human heart. Following that, we have some readings from Penguin's Poems for Love, because what would Valentine's Day be without some poetry for the bitter, the happy and the plain loved up? And finally, for those of you who haven't yet bought your Valentine a gift, we have some last-minute book recommendations from some of us here at Penguin Towers. So first up, we've got Lucy Robinson with her tale of the worst date ever. Hello, I'm Lucy Robinson and my new novel, A Passionate Love Affair with a Total Stranger, is out now. So it's Valentine's Day, which of course makes us all think about love. And I've been invited to share with you a tale from my dating years. Um, This date took place on February the 13th, a few years ago, and everything that I'm about to tell you is true. So I meet with a man and... um, Obviously, he looks nothing like he was meant to. Um, Obviously, half of his head is arranged around his shoulders in in white flakes. Um, But that really, (laughs) that really was not the worst of it. We sat down and the conversation was dreadful. Um, I'd arranged for us to meet in my favourite little French wine bar, which is really genuinely French and authentic. His response to this was to say, Oh God, it's a bit grubby, isn't it? Oi, garçon, garçon. Duvan, Duvan, please. Mercy. Um, now, after a few hours, a couple of hours of this, I was borderline suicidal. So I started making moves to leave. And then he grabbed my hand and said, please don't leave. Please stay another hour. There's something I have to show you. Now, quite what it was about that sentence that I that, that appealed to me, I, I, I will never know. But I agreed to stay. Um, and once I agreed to say, stay, He again took my hand and said, this date has meant so much to me. I even borrowed £50 from my mum to fund it. And he said, as a token of my gratitude for you going out with me, I've written you a song. Um, So I sort of presumed he might start singing. No. (laughs) Oh God, it's so terrible. The poor man, the night before, had sat in his bedroom, written and recorded a song and then put it onto his iPod, which he then forced me to listen to. Um, I don't remember much about the song, other than something about... Your face. Embrace. Um, And at that point, I said, no, I really do actually have to go home. Thank you so much. Um, I got on the first bus that came, even though it it was going nowhere near where I lived. Um, Sat down, breathed a huge sigh of relief, and then... Hello! He'd followed me onto the bus. He wasn't going that way either. I cowered in the corner of my seat and replied, Hello. We sat and chatted for about ten minutes, and at that point, once again, I realised I was really quite in serious danger of, of taking my own life. 
So I'm afraid to say that as we pulled up outside King's Cross, I literally got up and ran and said, I must get the tube. I'm afraid of buses. And that was that. It was a really dreadful evening. Unfortunately, listeners, we don't have the song he wrote for you. I must say the rhyming of face and embrace was truly inspired. But I think my favourite part was that he borrowed 50 quid from his mum to go on the date. How touching. Next up, we've got a romantic recipe from Jill's Clancy's Five Ingredients, Ten Minutes. Little ricotta tartlets with fig and honey. Make sure you get your ricotta from a good deli and don't use the watery ricotta they sell in tubs in the supermarket. You can use any fruit you like. If figs aren't in season, try fresh berries or finely sliced ripe pears or you could even go tropical with sliced mango and passion fruit. And it's not limited to fruit toppings. Try praline, chopped nuts, even shaved chocolate. I need to make these tarts again soon. For two diners, you will need 250 grams ricotta, two tablespoons of sugar, eight digestive biscuits, two large ripe figs quartered lengthways, and any variation of honey. Preheat the oven to 200 degrees Celsius. Meanwhile, combine the ricotta and sugar in a small bowl. Place four biscuits in the oven for two minutes. Remove biscuits from the oven. Using a soup spoon and a tea towel, carefully shape the biscuits into little tartlet shells. Repeat with remaining biscuits. Divide ricotta mixture between tartlet shells. Top each with a fig quarter and drizzle with honey. For gluten-free, use gluten-free biscuits and skip the warming and shaping step as they're more likely to break. For dairy-free or vegan, use whipped coconut cream in place of the ricotta. Vegans who don't eat honey can use maple syrup instead. Short on time? Don't worry about warming and shaping the biscuits. Just serve them flat with the ricotta and figs on top. That sounds really good. Perfect to make for a date night. And now for the raunchier listeners, here's an extract from Sylvia Day's historical romance, Seven Years to Sin. Jess was following when a rustling noise to the left put temperance on alert. The dog's dark ears and tail perked up while her tan muscular body tensed with expectation. Jess's heart beat faster. If it was a wild boar or feral fox, the situation would be disastrous. She would be devastated if something untoward happened to Temperance, who was the only creature on earth who did not judge Jess by standards she struggled greatly to meet. A squirrel darted across the path. Jess melted with relief and gave a breathless laugh, but Temperance did not stand down. The pug lunged, ripping her leash from Jess's slackened grip. Bloody hell, Temperance! In a flash of tiny limbs and fur, the two creatures were gone. The sounds of the chase, the rustling of leaves and the pug's low growling quickly faded. Tossing up her hands, Jess left the walkway and followed the path of trampled foliage. She was so focused on tracking, she failed to realise she'd come upon a large gazebo until she very nearly ran into it. She veered to the right... A female's throaty laugh broke the quiet. Jess stumbled to a startled halt. Hurry, Lucius, the woman urged breathlessly. 
Trent will note my absence. Wilhelmina, Lady Trent. Jess stood unmoving, barely breathing. There was a slow, drawn-out creaking of wood. Patience, darling. A recognisable masculine voice rejoined in a lazy, practised drawl. Let me give you what you paid for. The gazebo creaked again, louder this time, quicker and harder. Lady Trent gave a thready moan. Alistair Lucius Caulfield. In flagrante delicto with the Countess of Trent. Dear God! The woman was nearly a score of years his senior. Beautiful, yes, but of an age with his mother. The use of his middle name was startling and perhaps telling. Aside from the obvious, perhaps they were intimate in a deeper sense. Was it possible the roguish Caulfield had a tendre for the lovely Countess, enough that she would have reason to call him by a name not used by others? You, the Countess purred, are worth every shilling I pay for you. Dear God, perhaps not an intimacy at all, but a transaction, an arrangement, with a man providing the services. Hoping to move on without giving herself away, Jess took a tentative step forward. A slight movement in the gazebo prompted her to still again. Her eyes narrowed, struggling to overcome the insufficient light. It was her misfortune to be bathed in the faint glow of the waning moon, while the interior of the gazebo remained deeply shadowed by its roof and overhanging trees. She saw a hand wrapped around one of the domed roof's supporting poles, and another set a short ways above it. A man's hand, gripping for purchase. From their height on the beam, she knew he was standing. Lucius! Oh, for God's sake, don't stop now! Lady Trent was pinned between Caulfield and the wood, which meant he was facing Jess. Twin glimmers in the darkness betrayed a blink. He saw her, was, in fact, staring at her. Jess wished the ground would open and swallow her whole. What was she to say? How was one supposed to act when caught in such a situation? Lucius, damn you! The weathered wood whined in response to its pressures. The feel of your big cock in me is delicious, but far more so when it's moving. Jess's hand went to her throat. Despite the cold, perspiration misted her forehead. The horror she should have felt at finding a man engaged in sexual congress was markedly absent. Because it was Caulfield and he fascinated her. It was a terrible sort of captivation with which she viewed him, a mixture of envy for his freedom and horror at the ease with which he disregarded public opinion. She had to get away before she was forced to acknowledge her presence to Lady Trent. She took a careful step forward. Wait! Caulfield's voice was gruffer than before. She froze. I cannot, Lady Trent protested breathlessly. But it was not the Countess Caulfield spoke to. 
one of his hands was outstretched, extended toward Jess. The request stunned her into immobility. A long moment passed in which her gaze remained fixed on the twin sparkles of his eyes. His breathing became harsh and audible. Then he gripped the pole again and began to move. His thrusts began slowly at first, then became more fervent with a building tempo. The rhythmic protests of the wood battered Jess from all sides. She could see no detail beyond those two hands and glistening gaze that smouldered with a tangible heat. But the sounds she heard filled her mind with images. Caulfield never took his eyes from her, even as he rutted so furiously she wondered how the Countess could take pleasure in such violence of movement. Lady Trent was nearly incoherent, coarse words of praise spilling from her lips between high-pitched squeals. Jess was riveted by this exposure to a side of sexual congress she'd been mostly ignorant of. She knew the mechanics, her stepmother had been most thorough. Do not cringe or cry when he enters you. Try to relax. It will decrease the discomfort. Make no sound of any kind. Never voice a complaint. And yet Jess had seen the knowing looks of other women and heard whispers behind fans that hinted at more. Next we learn all about the human heart from Hugh Aldersley-Williams' Anatomies. The heart is a hollow muscular organ of a conical form placed between the lungs and enclosed in the cavity of the pericardium. The heart is pyramidal, or rather turbinated, and somewhat answering to the proportion of a pine kernel. The heart of creatures is the foundation of life, the prince of all, the sun of their microcosm, on which all vegetation does depend, from whence all vigour and strength does flow. The heart like a chasuble, the heart like a fleshy whoopee-cushion. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. The heart is a hungry and restless thing. It will have something to feed upon. If it enjoys nothing from God, it will hunt for something among the creatures, and there it often loses itself as well as its end. The heart is forever inexperienced. The heart is a lonely hunter. The heart, then, is many things to many people, as these varied descriptions attest. The first three descriptions here are by anatomists at different periods, taken respectively from Gray's Anatomy, Helkiah Crook's Microcosmographia, and William Harvey's De Motu Cordis. The next, The Heart Like a Chasuble, is from Pantagruel by François Rabelais, who was an anatomist as well as a monk, a lawyer, and a writer. On one occasion, in Lyon in 1538, a corpse spoke to Rabelais, at least as told in a contemporary poem by Etienne Dolly. The corpse clearly felt he had got his own back on the judges who had only sought to increase his punishment by sentencing him to death with dissection when he learned he was to be dissected by the great Rabelais. Now, fortune, you may rage indeed. All blessings I enjoy. The next, possibly more informative simile, comes from Louisa Young's The Book of the Heart. The remaining statements 
are drawn from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, the 17th-century French philosopher Blaise Pascal and his contemporary, the English clergyman John Flavel, and the American writers Henry David Thoreau and Carson McCullers. The idea that the heart represents in some important way our very core goes back to Aristotle and beyond. According to Young, Egyptian and Greek stories of more than 3,000 years ago reveal that the heart was already regarded as the seat of identity, life, fertility, loyalty and love. Whether this was physiologically true was to remain unknown for many centuries. But the fact that it was absolutely the case in a symbolic sense was underwritten for some 1,300 years when Galen, in the 2nd century CE, placed the liver, heart and brain in charge of the tripartite body, abdomen, thorax and head, the heart, inevitably, central of the three. Unlike all the other internal organs, the heart is clearly discernible as a site of activity. It beats and beats at a rate that changes in response to the world around it, faster in the presence of a lover or of danger, slower in sleep and at the approach of death. Classical physicians saw the heart as the source of the body's heat and as connected with the blood, but it is astonishing that its true function as a pump sending the blood round the body was not understood for so long. Leonardo da Vinci came tantalisingly close to the truth when he observed, as Galen had not, that the heart has four chambers, is highly muscular, and is the source of all blood vessels. Had he only noticed that some of these vessels carry blood out from the heart and others return it, he surely would have drawn the obvious conclusion and sealed his reputation as rather more than an amateur in the field of anatomy. One way or another, the heart retains its place in our hearts, as it were. Metaphors to do with the heart seem very real. To die of a broken heart is surely one of the most awful ways to die, never mind that this squashy, elastic organ cannot break in a physical sense. It can weaken, become atrophied and diseased, but it is never the brittle object implied by the cliché of a heart with a lightning bolt cracking it in two. The emblematic status of the heart is assisted by its compactness and portability. Especially in the case of saints and martyrs, the heart was often buried separately from the rest of the body. This practice stemmed in part from necessity. Guts and eviscerated organs were buried first in order to lessen the stink of a rotting corpse in church, but it was also symbolic. The heart, as Young tells us, can also be pickled, sent, given, kept, eaten or worn around the neck. A heart could even be repatriated from foreign wars when plague laws prevented the return of the body. Given its symbolic importance, it is perhaps surprising that we are happy to remain largely ignorant about the real appearance of the heart. The beating, visceral thing itself plays so invisible a part in our lives that we do not even know its shape. This is true of the human heart and animal heart alike, for the latter has been marginalised in the kitchen, not central at all, but classed with offal. At the same time, the heart has become ever more standardised as a symbol. Drawings of the 17th century show the heart shaded as a three-dimensional object, not always delineated with anatomical accuracy, perhaps, but nonetheless at least displaying some of the irregular morphology of the real organ. But during the 18th and 19th centuries, on playing cards, in woodcuts and embroidery, and finally on commercial valentine cards, the heart became far more familiar as a flattened and symmetric figure. How did the heart arrive? at this stylized and most unrealistic two-dimensional device, a red, 
twin-lobed inverted triangle. Theories are many and ancient. In Egyptian hieroglyphics, a vase stood for the heart. Is our heart icon the outline of a vase? The curlicued design of a lyre offers a Greek explanation, or it may simply be a development from that inverted triangle used to represent the female sex, a symbolism celebrated by the fashion designer Mary Quant, who got her husband to clip her pubic hair in this shape. In fact, the design we interpret today as a symbol of the heart had its beginnings as the depiction of an ivy leaf or a bunch of grapes. The symbol on the suit of cards that we call hearts was originally such a leaf. Hearts in medieval art and literature were often described as pear or peach-shaped. Giotto's fresco of charity in the Scrovegni chapel in Padua has her offering a teardrop-shaped heart from a bowl of fruit. But at some point the flattened ivy-leaf motif seems to have taken over as the preferred shape for the human heart. The first heart with a cleft may be that depicted in Francesco di Barbarino's book of emblems I documenti d'amore, dating from around 1310, while the first stylized heart in an illustrated anatomy dates from 1345. In churches, worship devoted to the Sacred Heart of Jesus gradually supplanted the Franciscan devotion of the Five Wounds of Christ. Later, the Sacred Heart alone became the symbol of the Roman Catholic backlash against Protestantism. This lurid symbol was not without its problems, however. At the end of the 19th century, for example, Catholic missionaries in Rwanda found themselves accused by their would-be converts of cannibalism because of the graphic nature of their crusading logo. The simplified heart shape was cut into furniture by the Amish and the carpenters of the English arts and crafts movement. Today, it features in the branding of many products, promising, confusingly, either that they are good for you or that they are naughty but nice. There is even a key option for a heart symbol on my Apple computer, which has served me no purpose. Until now. And now for some readings from Penguin's Poems for Love. Watch out for the bitter one we snuck in there. Let's be honest, you can't really have a Valentine's Day without a bit of heartache. Christina G. Rossetti. I wish I could remember that first day. I wish I could remember that first day. First hour. First moment of your meeting me. If bright or dim the season, it might be. Summer or winter, for aught I can say. So unrecorded did it slip away. So blind was I to see and to foresee. So dull to mark the budding of my tree, that would not blossom yet for many a May. If only I could recollect it such, a day of days, I let it come and go, as traceless as a thaw of bygone snow. It seemed to mean so little, meant so much, if only now I could recall that touch, first touch of hand in hand, did one but know. Thomas More, When I Loved You when I loved you, I can't but allow I had many an exquisite minute. But the scorn that I feel for you now hath even more luxury in it. Thus, whether we're on or we're off, some witchery seems to await you. To love you is pleasant enough, and, oh, tis delicious to hate you. An Untitled Poem by Emily Dickinson It was a quiet way. He asked if I was his. I made no answer of the tongue, but answer of the eyes. 
And then he bore me on before this mortal noise with swiftness, as of chariots and distance as of wheels. This world did drop away as acres from the feet of one that leaneth from balloon upon an ether street. The gulf behind was not, the continents were new. Eternity it was before, eternity was due. No seasons were to us, it was not night nor morn, but sunrise stopped upon the place and fastened it in dawn. And finally, for those who need a bit of gift-buying inspiration, here are some book recommendations from us here at Penguin. Please be aware that we literally went around the office with a dictaphone and harassed people at their desks, so there will be phones ringing and keyboards clacking in the background. My favourite romantic book is called The History of Love by Nicole Krauss, and it is an extraordinary, heartbreaking romance that spans decades um, and continents and ends up with a beautiful scene with an old man and a young girl and they've both lost loves and they find sort of comfort from one another in a very magical way. Um, It's not something you can ever do justice to in five seconds so you must just read it. My favourite romantic novel of the moment has to be Beautiful Creatures. It's Today's Gone With The Wind. My wife loves a bit of Leslie Pierce, so um, forgive me, it's probably a good call. For Valentine's Day, I would give uh, my Valentine a copy of The Great Gatsby because it's one of the great tragic romance stories and it's the most beautifully written novel ever. I would say that my favourite love story would have to be Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. The most important thing is not to give someone something that you want them to like, it's just to give them something that you love, that you're passionate about in the hope that either they will share your passion for it or just that they will take some delight from getting to know something that you feel so strongly about. My favourite romantic book of all time is Jane Eyre, proof that even the plain amongst us can find our romantic hero. I'm going to buy my Valentine the new Jamie book, Jamie's 15 Minute Meals, so he can cook me a lovely romantic meal. The gift I would give would be A Suitable Boy by Vikram Seth. It's 1,300 pages long, takes about six months to read, but it's a beautiful love story and is a fantastic portrait of the entire continent of India. I would recommend Beautiful Runes because you can give it to your girlfriends who don't have a valentine, you can give it to your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or you can give it to your parents, grandparents, anyone who doesn't have a present yet. Perfect valentine gift, funny, slightly sad, but all ends very happily, and it's got Richard Burton. It's perfect. Okay, so for boyfriends who haven't got a present yet, this is a slightly left-field one, but if you live in London, it might be a good, good present. It is a short book about Roy Lichtenstein, and there is very conveniently a Tate Modern show starting later this month. Uh, so you can impress your girls and take them to an art show and sort of show yourself up to be a bit of a culture vulture. But also Roy Lichtenstein um, getting around to Valentine's Day. He had his heart broken lots of times, and lots of his work... Uh, which features lots of sort of crying women, is actually a comment about him, and he was dumped a lot. So it's a sweet little book, tells you all about his work and his life, and hopefully you'll get some brownie points for taking them somewhere nice. I think Valentine's presents for pets and animals is the new thing, and I've got the perfect book. It's African Love Story by Daphne Sheldrick, and it tells the story of her time with all the wild animals out in Kenya over the years. 
It's absolutely fantastic story of elephants, birds, bambies, and anything touchable and squeezable. And it's very, very readable. The book I would give my Valentine would be a cookbook, which isn't because I want her to cook me lots of food, it's because she says she needs to get better at cooking. My favourite romantic book of late has been Above All Things, which comes out in March this year. Um, it's about the love story between Ruth and George Mallory. George Mallory was an explorer in the 1920s who perished whilst trying to come back down from Everest. Um, and it's all about the letters that they send to one another. Um, and she doesn't actually find out that he's died until after the event because she receives his last letter after he's already passed away. And it's really heart-wrenching and romantic, and I absolutely love it. I'd have to go with tradition and recommend Pride and Prejudice. Can't go wrong with a classic. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them on podcast at ukpenguingroup.com or find them on Twitter at Penguin Podcast.